Hello, and welcome to the 40 Drinks Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie McLaughlin. Sometime around their 40th birthday, plus or minus, many of us start to feel what I've started calling the ick. Like one or many, or sometimes even most aspects of our lives don't fit anymore, and you just don't know what to do about it. I know that was true for me, and I made quite a mess of it, if I'm being honest. But having 40 drinks with 40 people over the course of a year helped me escape the influence of that ick. On this podcast, I welcome you to tap into my stories and experience, as well as those of my guests, to help you emerge from the ick and maybe even avoid some of the mistakes we made along the way. Today, my guest is Paul Padmore, the host of the My Perfect Failure podcast. He focuses on the principle that failure is never permanent and that there are always opportunities for learning and growth anytime we face and survive a failure in life. Hey, Paul, thanks for being here today. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. I'm delighted to be here on the podcast. Love what you're doing. I've loved listening to your content, but also reading your content as well. So I'm honored to be a guest here today. Oh, thank you, Paul. That's so kind. We were just talking and this is where I want to start. You and I have quite some similarities in our geography, even though we're separated by what they call the pond, in Mm. that I live just about an hour north of Boston, which is a major city. And you live about 45, 50 minutes outside of London. Mm, mm. And tell me what your town is known for. It's known for making people dizzy because we've got lots of roundabouts. <laughs> people that come into Pace and Stoke, they're like, why have they got so many roundabouts? People that have lived here for a while, they get used to it. They're just there. We're always fascinated when we see roadworks and they're building more roundabouts. <laughs> Well, it's funny because in my part of the world, we call them rotaries, but roundabouts are very common as well. I have one less than a mile from my house. So we have some geographic similarities that have already connected us. I love this. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You've got lots of things and the publishers as well. Right, right. Backgrounds in publishing. Boston, Boston Global, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So why don't we start there? Why don't you tell me a little bit about your, I call them your formative adult years. Bring us up to where our story starts. I guess the relevant starting point would be, I'll very quickly get up to where we are. Born in London, raised in Basingstoke, studied in London. I've worked in Basingstoke for a while, but ended up going back to London for work. You know, made a city, more opportunities there. Did a number of different jobs and careers and enjoyed those met some wonderful people then I got by default it wasn't a plan I get approached by a recruiter to take an interview for a publisher I didn't even know who they were really recruiters thought I was a good match for their job went there did the interview got the job and it wasn't like a marriage made in heaven but it kind of slowly got familiar with the job met some wonderful people started building these fabulous relationships which I still have to till today So I kind of stayed in that industry. I worked for one national publisher in the UK and around probably about 2010, I got the opportunity to actually go and work for another publisher and there was synergy. The funny thing was for about five years, I was at this new career, similar type of company, both national publishers and the company that I previously worked for, which was in a financial district in London, actually acquired the company that I've been working for about four or five years. And I never planned to go back to what's called Canary Wharf. It's like a little island in London. It's kind of like a little bit of a pain to get to unless you live in that area. So I kind of thought once I'd done four or five years of that, I thought, okay, done Canary Wharf. Don't really need to do this again. 
but it was almost like Groundhog Day where I was going back, going for the same turnstile. <laughs> and it's like, I know this so well, I never thought it was going to happen again. And this was your early 40s at this point in time, right? Yes, yes, yes. So to give you context, yeah. I was in my 40s. I had a, a nice yep. birthday party with all my friends around that time. Around 2016, this is when the local world I was working for, which was part of the Daily Mail group, they got acquired. And so I ended up going back to Canary Wharf and it wasn't the best fit ever. It was almost like we were going back into this corporate thing and we were a little bit more free-spirited. You know, wonderful people there, wonderful company, but it probably wasn't the best fit. Mm -hmm. So then I got the opportunity, it came out of the blue. Again, this is around 2016 to go and work for a startup with some really talented people. And that was the kickoff in 2017, which it did. There was was not that many of us, but everybody knew one another. Somehow we'd all work with one another, so we knew one another. So it was like a lovely little family. So we started in earnest 2017. My role was to look after growth and partnership. So ultimately that boils down to generating revenue. Mm -hmm. Not too long into that journey, it became apparent that we weren't scaling as quickly as we needed to. Certainly I wasn't able to generate the levels of revenue that I needed to cover my seats and Mm -hmm. and so forth. So later on that year, probably October maybe, I got made redundant. And I knew it was, it was, I'd been processing it, begrudgingly processing it for probably a few months prior to actually happening. When it actually happened, definitely felt a little bit of shame, a little bit that I'd failed, um, a little bit, you know, embarrassed, all the logical things you can think of. Yeah. And, and then it was like, what do I do? I was in my 40s and it was just like, well, you know, that wasn't meant to happen. I was still getting people congratulating me on the new job because you obviously don't, when you start a new job, people see it and they don't always physically see you. So you might see people and they say, how's right. your job going? Really excited. So then you're like, well, no, I've been redundant. What, you want to just start it? I know. So I was having to process that. And that obviously made me more kind of fixated on the fact that I failed and hadn't gone according to plan. I was very lucky that I got another job reasonably quickly. And then I started thinking about failure more in a constant way, I would say. So I could be at lunch, I could be at dinner, I could be at gym, I could be in the tube. And I would think about how does a woman in a supermarket, the guy in the street, the guy in the tube, how does sort of the everyday person navigate and process failures and disappointments because it just occurred to me that there are some people that view it as part of their journey they don't even view it as a failure they know in order to get to from a to b there's going to be obstacles that have to be and will be navigated and they might be bumpy but they will get there and i realized i didn't have those tools i was devoid of any of those tools that everybody else had and i thought other people potentially are as well I'm curious, how were you handling the failure or managing the failure? The fact that you got a job pretty quickly thereafter means that the worst of it was, you know, you weren't a year trying to figure out how to pay rents and stuff. But what did the failure feel like to you? It felt very personal, very isolating. It felt very, uh, I wouldn't say painful. It almost feels that you got this mark. Now, like somebody gets like a, I don't know, a marker and pings an F on your head, you know, for failure. It felt a little bit like that. <laughs> it felt like I was walking around with this mark on me and everybody knew. And it takes away some of the confidence. Because the thing is, we overthink. When something happens, it's almost we think about what other people think. If I process it now, if everybody had the time again, who was in that 
business, including me, we would have made different decisions. One of the decisions would have been I probably wasn't the right person for that role. And mm-hmm. and from my perspective, that's important because I've learned it's flattering when people approach you for a job and sometimes you don't think you just sign on the dotted line. That's probably right. what I did. And there was probably a lot of that, not just in that business, but in a lot of companies. So to answer your question, it felt personal and I felt, I guess, embarrassed by it and and the fact that I got another Mm -hmm. job you know your confidence is still quite low at that time so you do build it up but the confidence was still quite low let me ask another question did the Mm. startup go under completely or was it just you and or other people who were let go individually was it a personal failure or was it a company failure well, I guess it was both. You know what? I guess what I've learned, we all grew from that experience. There was more growth than failure ultimately. But to mm-hmm. answer your question, I got made redundant and ultimately the business didn't last much longer. There was a domino okay. effect of different people going at different times and ultimately the business didn't survive. I can see how that would feel personal yeah. that's kind of where i was going with the personal piece if the business goes under and everybody gets shoved off the boat that's sinking you know that's one mm-hmm. thing but when it's just you being let go because mm-hmm. i've been i've been made redundant a couple of times in my career mm-hmm. and it does feel very personal yeah it does and i guess if i hadn't been made redundant and not in some respects failed i wouldn't be talking to you today i wouldn't have started my podcast because i've learned right. a lot and i've learned to view that situation a little bit differently than i would have done before and it's given me a different lens on how i engage different situations yeah. that happen in life and also the way that i'm able to be more empathetic to people that try to do things and if it doesn't work the first time sometimes we think well you know why are they bothering why are they do you kind of have a different lens about why people should do things and if it doesn't work it doesn't mean that you failed it. the main thing is to be in the arena and to be able to learn and grow if we don't try and if we don't experience these moments then the growth is kind of negligible so it's lovely to be able to use a different lens to look at situations there's an organizational psychologist called dr benjamin hardy he's got a book called gap in the game and most people focus on the gap when something happens say somebody has a presentation and it doesn't go very well it's very common for people to focus on the fact that it didn't go very well what he talked about is the game there's always a game there you, you may have missed something or you know one of the slides there might have been a grammatic error or a table might mm-hmm. be not quite right but the fact is you delivered the presentation it was a presentation yeah. you hadn't done before so there's always a game somewhere Let me pause for just a moment because you said something about being in the arena. And I just want to pause there because I don't know that everybody is familiar with it. This comes from a quote by Theodore Roosevelt, and it's long, but let me just read part of it. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. And it goes on and on. At the end, it says, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. And that piece, I think, was made popular by Brene Brown, who has a book called Daring Greatly. So I just wanted to add context to this piece about being in the game and then moving into this insight about from every error there can be gains i wish i could have said that as eloquently as theodore roosevelt 
Yeah, don't we all? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. This, it's nice to have room for growth. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Mm. Okay, so you were made redundant in 2017. You were 45, mm. and while you got a job shortly thereafter and were able to continue gainful employment, you started really rolling around with this idea of failure. How long were you marinating on the concept of failure? A long time. Well, it felt like a long time. It was over a year, I think. Initially, I had the thoughts and they were just thoughts that just appeared and came randomly. I could be at lunch, on the tube, at dinner, in bed, just randomly. I could be in conversations with somebody and they would never know. But I was thinking about failure. So I decided after about a year, I should do something with this. Maybe I thought about it prior to that, but maybe I didn't have the confidence to actually do anything with it. And then I realized that I love podcasts. I love listening to podcasts. And I thought I should do something with it. And I thought, what should I do? Well, maybe a podcast. And then the, the imposter syndrome kicked in. I'm thinking, well, who's going to want to listen to me <laughs> or something that I'm going to create? And particularly talking about failure, because failure has this taboo type stigma to it. Most people, if you bring failure to the conversation, they're, what are you trying to imply? I failed. People don't discuss that. We live in a world of Instagram where everyone's got a Ferrari. Everybody's going to the airport with their Louis Vuitton gear, to not even to get on a chartered plane, to get on their own plane. So I definitely had imposter syndrome. But then I thought to myself, why don't I just not mention it to a lot of people? I mentioned it to about three people that I sort of handpicked. My brother, Norval, who did my website, and my work colleague, Dan. I thought if I mentioned it to too many people, people would look at me. Really? Really? Are you okay? So I decided not to. And yeah, 2018, I pretty much crafted the name, crafted mm -hmm. in my head what I wanted to do. And then the start of 2019, I created a website and sort of concept and all that type of thing. And I really had imposter syndrome around the idea of me doing this podcast because at that point it became real. I knew I wanted it to be a discussion based, similar to you. I wanted to have discussions with people that were more enlightened than me, had levels of expertise I don't have. Then I had to start reaching out to people, which I love. I quite enjoyed that piece. So I would sit on a Saturday evening and I would just find people that I felt there was some synergy in terms of the narrative that I was looking at. I would just search them, send them an email, and then hopefully they would respond. And when people responded, it was like, yes. But then it was like, wow, I'm going to have to do this now. And when people come back and say, yes, you kind of have to, you know, there's a professional like handshake. Yeah. So you kind of have to yeah. do it. I guess I had to in embrace the imposter syndrome. I didn't even know what it was, actually. I didn't even know the term imposter syndrome. But that's what I felt and I had. And yeah, it's been hugely enlightening for me. I've learned a lot. The journey continues. The more I learn, the more I realize I don't know. So it's a continuous journey. One of the things that you said to me when we communicated via email was failures and setbacks are a treasure trove for opportunity for learning, personal and professional development. What did you learn from your quote unquote failure when you were made redundant from the startup? Yeah, good question. I didn't recognize this immediately, but having worked in a corporate role or for a corporate company where everything is done for you, it's almost like, it's not like this, but in terms of resources behind you, it's almost like a holiday camp because you've got finance, you've got IT, you've got marketing, you've got this machine that powers you. You walk into the office, the offices have been cleaned the night before, all the rubbish where you haven't cleaned your right. desk, your desk is polished and it 
everything is done in a startup it's totally different you have to engage the finance you have to engage the marketing you have to be the it guy maybe not just for you maybe for your colleagues who maybe don't have time to do stuff so you, everybody's pitching in so i learned that i'm a good collaborator i learned that my capabilities in those areas like finance marketing it you know i'm far capable than i would have ever given myself credit for and not that i yeah. love those areas and i will never be sort of the best person ever at those because i guess there's certain things that i guess aspire to but i know that my capability in those is way beyond anything that i could have ever have anticipated and i guess most importantly i've learned that i'm more resilient than i probably would have given myself credit for because the fact that ultimately i've made redundant it was my first foray into startup land and when we experience failures and setbacks we do recover we do recover and there are opportunities there so now that you're ruminating on failure after this one professional experience are you noticing other failures in your life that maybe you weren't able to acknowledge before that? You know what? It's a good question, actually. And I had been made redundant before, but this one was more maybe because I was in my 40s. You know, when you're in your 40s, you kind of feel that you're at that point where you've got all the expertise, you've been around the block. And you're at a level where you think, hmm, that happened in my 20s, it's not meant to happen in my 40s. So I had failed before and can fail again. But I guess ultimately, I think I've got to the point that I realise that when, when these things happen, there's a different lens that we can put on that situation. I don't wake up and think, you know, what can I fail at today? Although Sarah Blakely, who owns Spanx, she famously says that when she was a kid, her dad would say to her, what did you fail at today at school? And if she said nothing, he would be disappointed because he knew that she wasn't learning as much and she wasn't maybe developing the way that she can do. So although I'm not potentially going out to fail every day, I realise that there's something we can do with this. And it's almost like playing hide and seek. It's looking for the clues. And that's what I've learned to look mm. for the clues. And I would love to get to the point where the stigma on failure is removed because I do think that, I don't know what it's like in the US, but I certainly think in the UK that the scary thing is when people don't try to do anything because they think about failure too much. You think about what others think. You were saying that there's a, a stigma to failure. And mm. what I thought in my head was, is there? Says who? And what do they have to do with me? I'm curious. And let me just pause and say, I have been, we'll use the British terms, I've been made redundant twice in my career. It sounds so much more highbrow when you say it that way. <laughs> um, <laughs> the first time I was in my 20s and neither time did I see it coming. Mm. And I think that's certainly a me thing, but the first time was at this weird little company. I had left a job that wasn't a great fit and gone to this weird little company in Massachusetts outside of Boston. And I don't know, they did like research or something. And I, I went in there to do some marketing and the owner of the company, it was a very small company. The owner of the company was very much, the word in my head is megalomania, megalomaniacal <laughs> and very controlling. And we had to have his thumb on everything. I think at the time this was, we had PageMaker or Quark Express or something. And he said, build me a something. I don't know, was that a brochure or a flyer or a something? And so I did. I got no more direction than that. And so I mm. did. 
but it wasn't what he wanted. And so it was just wrong. Mm. Then I think it was, well, I'll do it Mm. instead of any sort of direction or Mm. feedback or, you know, anything like that. They would have people come in and bring lunches and stuff. The job only lasted three weeks. And by the third week, they had me washing dishes in the ladies room after their lunches. Mm. They weren't giving me much to do. And then they had me washing dishes. And I remember going, what the heck? What is going Mm. on here? Actually, I might've been in my early thirties now that I think about it. But anyway, he called me in one day, he called me into his office and he said, I think we're going to terminate you. And I said, what does that mean? <laughs> I literally had no idea. I was so naive. <laughs> Is that a pay rise? Exactly. Am I doing that well? <laughs> a bonus? Is that a bonus um, pay? Great. And so, yeah, we said, no, you're getting fired. And I, I remember leaving that job sort of in a whirlwind, sobbing, crying. Mm. I just didn't know what had happened. But also, had I been older, had I been more confident, had I been able to speak up for myself, had I been able to do any of those things, I would have realized that this was a very bad fit and I was not going to gel with this guy. Mm. I'm too autonomous. I'm too Mm. outspoken. I have my own thoughts and ideas. So that was the first time. Can I just interject? Yeah, yeah. What you summarized at the end, that's the game. You know when I talked about the game? So that is the game. So what you've got there, you've got some really clear insights on what isn't a good fit and what is a good fit and those are things when you write those things down and you isolate that when we're thinking about new situations in the future we know that the next role has to have some of this and doesn't have to have some of that yeah yeah i think i didn't necessarily have that much insight on it at that point Mm. And the sort of immediate gain for me was being out of that bad situation and then having to find a job and and finding one that was a better fit, which I did do. My second experience with being made redundant was in my mid-30s, and it was a job that I had been recruited to by someone I had known in high school, the job description to me was the ultimate. I thought, I'm going to be here for 15 years. This is going to be amazing. And the first year was great. And then there was a transition in leadership at the company. And so the people who had brought me in and who had respected me and understood my worth and my value were no longer in that leadership position. And so then when the new regime came in, it wasn't as good of a fit. And so then there were the next, you know, almost year was this downward spiral of misaligned understanding of what my job was. And was I supposed to be the professional here providing services or are you just telling me what to do? Then there was the making mistakes and getting in trouble and losing confidence and making mistakes and getting in trouble and losing confidence and just Mm. sort of circling the drain until the day where the managing partner came in with the head of HR. And again, Paul, I'm telling you, they came in my office, they shut the door and he sat down and I was like, Hey guys, what's going on? What, you know, Mm, what, what, what's up? Like thinking like we were going to talk about a something or other. And again, instead it was, he said, we're going to terminate you. And I literally laughed in his face Mm. because I was like, are you kidding me? But to me at that point, the gain from that was enormous in that 
I would not have been courageous enough to leave that job on my own. And it set me up to work with a career coach that I had known and to then launch my marketing agency, which is yeah. now 16 years old. Although it was awful and terrible and I still manage some negative thinking about it, I know that it was such the right thing for me mm. on a universal kind of level mm. because I've never fit anywhere professionally like I do at my own company, which sort of makes sense, right? It's because it's my own company because I've gotten to build it in a way mm. that suits me and suits my strengths and my weaknesses and my lifestyle and all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. It mirrors a lot of the conversations I have on my podcast. So many people, they transition. And I kind of alluded to it earlier around resilience, that I found resilience in my failure, but I found that people had it in spades loads. The amount of people that have had some really traumatic and difficult moments in their lives. And it's not just work related, it can be health related, it can be relationships. Everybody knows about the famous people like JK Rowling and Oprah and all these people. But there are lots of normal sort of non-famous people that face very similar, maybe even worse in some respects, challenges. And they've got mm -hmm. this strength of character, this inner resilience, inner grit, and they've used mm -hmm. that. And pretty much bar none, they're all doing fabulous things today that right. if they had a crystal ball when they were in that moment, they would never have probably envisaged they would be leading the lives that they are today. I'm always blown away when I hear these people and listen to these people. It's fabulous, really. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's for sure something I can speak to in my own life and certainly something I can talk about for a lot of the folks that I've interviewed for this podcast. And that is that going through this transition and having everything break down and managing all kinds of failures, whether it's personal, yeah. professional, relational, whatever, the things you learn from that and the life you build after that becomes something that you never could have mm. dreamed of. You, yeah. you couldn't have, when you were stuck in that bad place, when I was at that last full-time job that I had, when you were at the startup and things are going badly mm. and you're miserable, but you could never imagine that someday not so long. Mm. Someday I'm going to have my own company. I'm going to be my own boss. Yeah. I'm not going to treat people like these people mm. are treating yeah. people. I'm not going to act like this. And mm. I'm going to work with people I like, and I'm going to do work that I love and that I'm good at, and I'm going to be respected for it. And, mm. and I'm going to be happy. Yeah. But you can't see that when you're in the depths of it. No, that's no, very true. Hi, we'll get back to the conversation in just a minute. This is where I usually interrupt to ask you to look down at your phone and either rate or share the podcast, and I'd still love for you to do that. But today, I want to tell you about a two-page guide I created that will help you diagnose whether you, or maybe someone you love, is suffering from the ick. It's not always clear-cut, so this guide outlines the symptoms and red flags associated with the ick. You can download it from my website, 40drinks.com slash ick. Spell out the word 40. So that's 40drinks.com slash I-C-K. Okay, back to Paul, who's going to tell us what he learned from that job loss and how he thinks he'd manage that same situation today. There's something Tom Bellew, his podcast is Impact Theory. He always talks about the idea when something negative happens, as it does routinely in everybody's lives, he always thought, okay, what next? 
what next? Because it's happened, that situation's happened, you've got an opportunity, so what next? This is not being harsh, but we can stay paralysed by the situation, which is kind of quite quite easy to, or we can mm-hmm. think actually what next? You mentioned having a, a career coach, and I always think if you've got somebody like a coach or mentor or somebody, family member, whoever that you can speak to, just to coax us along, because I always think that we need collaboration, we need support, whether it's our spouse, close friend, a mentor, mm-hmm. it's, it's important that we don't try and do it alone, because we don't need to there's other people that can listen to us and give us the right sort of counts as and when we need it yeah yeah well and I can speak for myself too one of the things I learned from that career coach we did a bunch of assessments I'm like 36 at the time and I'm rolling my eyes at her I'm like I know what I'm good at lady I don't need to do these assessments but we did the assessments and one of them showed that you know I was an off the charts extrovert which is not a surprise to anyone but one of the things I didn't know then, which is 16 years ago, was that one of the things about extroverts is not just that we are comfortable or get energy when interacting with people, but a lot of times we don't even know what we think until we've said it out loud, until it's Mm. literally out here in the air out in front of us. I've spoken before about how I've worked with a career coach, I've had a couple of business coaches, worked with some spiritual advisors. I talk about how I've worked with some of these people, but for me, I know it's because a lot of times I don't even know what I think until it comes out of my mouth mm. and I'm actually batting it around mm. with someone. My business coach recently said to me, all I have to do is listen to you in order to give you the right answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is funny because uh, I do some of that with my clients as well. Yeah, having whether it's a friend or a family member, or a coach or an advisor or a mentor, it's absolutely useful to work through some of these stickier of our situations that we find yeah. ourselves in. Totally. I'm totally in line with that. I do think that it's nice to be able to find one or two people that we can lean into. And since your mm-hmm. point earlier about stigma, I do agree. I think you were going with it around what other people think you know we we tend Mm -hmm. to tap into what other people think and surprisingly most people I think we think that people think about us more than they actually do absolutely so we get obsessed with what other people think and sometimes they barely even register I learned something recently that the mind has a propensity to think about negative things from four or five times more in strength purposes than they would in terms of a positive. Mm-hmm. So if something negative happens, you need five or four positive situations to mitigate that one negative, if that makes sense. Interesting. So yeah, it does make sense. It's interesting. So that's something that I try and on the podcast, we talk about things like reframing a lot. We talk about self-talk. So sometimes if, say, our coach isn't there, sometimes we can say, Paul, you can do this. Paul, this isn't as bad as you think. Paul, you've done this before. Well, actually, somebody that I admire has done this. You can do this. You do have the ability. So we can bring these little tools to the surface as and when we need them. Because I firmly believe that we all have a gene of capability and achievement. And Mm -hmm. it's just being aware of it. It's just having that awareness and having the the right people around us. Yeah. You just touched on something. We keep doing this to each other. You just touched on something I was going to ask. After doing a podcast about talking about failure for three or four years now, what new tools have you learned that if you were to find yourself experiencing some major catastrophic failure again, like the getting mm. laid off, mm. how would you approach it differently? I guess the truth is in the pudding, isn't it? When these situations happen, how do you get back up again? There's lots of different things I've learned, you know, some of which we just discussed and maybe speaking to somebody. We talk about effective masterminding, having 
certain people in our camp that are good for certain things certain people are good for work situations some people are good for mm -hmm. financial some people are good for help some people are quite helpful for the disasters maybe i've got a couple of people that i can speak to in those scenarios i'm a great fan of i didn't know this before i'm ashamed to say fixed mindset and growth mindset carol duet talks a lot about a growth mindset and i lean into that quite heavily that there's always a way to process something differently where there's an obstacle there's a way i, I definitely lean into that a yep. lot all the conversations that i've had and not just those conversations it's the content that i read now the audio books that i listen to connecting with people like you i just feel that i'm and i'm a long way from being in a finished article but that is an opportunity for me because it means that there's still lots of growth to be had growth mindset is really important mm -hmm. the opportunity to reframe the opportunity to not judge. We need to give ourselves room to think, room to pause, and room to, to mull over. Where is the goal here? Can we think about anybody that we've admired? Parents or a famous actor, a famous author, you know, it could be anything. If we scratch the surface, these people invariably have all navigated and overcome huge obstacles. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to be one of those people. I want to yeah. be at the top of the hill. And somebody thinks, well, hmm, how have we done that? But when they when they scratch the surface and say, actually, this guy's been made redundant more times than anybody you could ever meet in your life. So, yeah, I'm mindful that I'm not the finished article. I still do fail, but I, I like to think that it doesn't have the same debilitating impact on me that it did have in 2016 and before then. I love that you bring up the concept of the growth mindset. Last season, I talked to a man by the name of Sherban Mare, who I believe was originally from Romania and moved to the United States when he was 22. His whole episode was about growth mindset oh, and wow. how he had applied it to his life. And I think that was episode 31. So if anybody else is interested in this concept of growth mindset, there's a little bit more. And that's the fun thing about doing these. And I'm sure you're seeing this on your mm. podcast as well, that the more people you talk to, the more commonalities you're finding. Yeah. While everybody's yeah. story is unique. There are commonalities. There are, I haven't quite got them yet, but there are sort of archetypes that help you comprehend and make sense of the topic. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll be yeah. listening to that episode because we all have an opportunity to absorb content. Yeah. I guess I'm more mindful of the stuff that I listen to and the stuff that I read than I would have been in my 30s. In my 40s, I just realized that content I read, what I listen to, conversations that I have, the people that I choose to spend time with is more considered. To be honest, it's becoming yeah. more organic. It's definitely becoming more organic, but I realize as we get a little bit older, a little bit wiser that, you know, quality time is important, that we spent where it doesn't provide value. I think as you get into those 40s, sometimes you might question it yeah. in the moment when you're having a discussion. Wow, I shouldn't be having this discussion. I'm actually bored. I don't need to be in this moment. And you think about how you can exit it those situations become less and less because we know how to avoid them right 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 yeah so the concept of sort of choosing how we spend our time and making sure that it, we're spending it meaningfully that's right and it only needs to be meaningful to us yeah right whatever that may be yeah. so i like what you're saying about how now you think about what you're reading and you think about what you're mm. listening to and you're awake about yeah, that you're conscious yeah. of it yeah so i'm laughing because i remember i used to go to work finish work come home have a shower have something to eat sit down in front of the tv 
and just slouch and watch some absolute garbage in terms of some of the TV that I'd watch. And I wish I could get that time back. That's funny that you say that. I am on the absolute opposite camp of that. Really? Really? Well, I guess I could put my feet in both camps because at the end of the day, the work that I do, the work that you do, it's all brain work. It's not mm. brawn work, right? You're using your brain. And for me, it's intense. Owning and running a small business, is, oh. it's a high wire act. Yeah. So at the end of the day, when I go home, I watch a lot of stupid television mm. at night. Part of it is that's how my husband and I spend quality time together yeah. is we actually watch the shows together mm. and we get into things together. But I do find that I personally need, I like to just, I like to let my brain melt out my ear mm. for a little while. And if mm. I sit in front of some stupid television, then I don't have to engage. Yeah. It's almost a, a relaxation thing yeah. for me. But on the other hand, there are other times and places where I'm consuming content that I'm much more thoughtful about and I'm yeah. much more careful about what I'm consuming. But on the TV after work, piece i'm still a brainless mindless entertain me consumer <laughs> yeah well like for me and I, there are some things that i watch on you know i guess it's a battle of opinions isn't it in terms of what's quality and what's not of course but i, I guess right. that because i don't know for the last three or four years i've been on this not a crusade but i'm deep into the content i'm deep into the subject matter and yeah. there's never enough yeah. time in a day yes that is true so i'm always thinking that time is such an important commodity i had all mm -hmm. this time oh you know a few years ago and i didn't even think about it and now yeah. there just isn't enough hours in a day not, not that that's a problem but it's a reality i know i do this thing at night where we'll have dinner and we have the terrible terrible habit but it's ingrained now we eat in front of the tv so we'll mm. watch a little bit of tv at night and then at 10 o'clock i say all right i'm done and for me i call 10 to 11 o'clock reading hour yeah <laughs> and so i'll go to bed and crawl in bed with a, with a book and that's the place that i'm much more thoughtful about what i'm consuming and reading and a lot of it is again reading for escapism but then there's the personal growth stuff and there's the spiritual stuff and the yeah. the business books yeah. so yeah, I still have a foot in each camp. Oh, right? totally. I totally. do a little bit of both. Yeah, and I think the reading stuff, particularly before you go to bed, I think that's a good practice because, and even if it's escapism, because it just feeds the brain, doesn't it? The brain starts thinking in ways that ideas and thoughts spring up. In the mornings at the moment, I never used to do this, but I get on a bike and exercise and stuff. And I like doing it equally just because my brain starts thinking. I have those little, not eureka moments, but those little moments where I think, actually, I need to put that in a note or I need to send myself an email because it's stimulating thoughts. So it, it has been an interesting journey, but I still feel that the journey is in its infancy in terms of my knowledge base and what I want to learn. Yeah. So I like that because it means that, alluding to what I was saying before, there's a lot of opportunity for growth. And regardless of being in our 40s and beyond, it's nice to right. think like that. That's why I love what you're doing, because I do think that you can get to certain ages and people think that it's kind of downhill. Right? It doesn't ever have to be. Yeah. Yeah. So Stephen Pressfield, he's got a number of books. One of them's called The War of Arts and the other one's called Turning Pro. He talks about the shadow life. Like when we end up doing a job for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, and we kind of know deep down that mm, I'm not sure about this, but that you have that compound effect that we do it all the time. And there might be something that we really would like to do, but we feel resistance and fear stops us from doing it. He talks about the resistance a lot. We're not able to manage the resistance. The resistance is good. It's difficult. It's a challenge. But right. when, when we feel resistant, 
the other side of that there's opportunity and he talks about shadow lives and it's the idea that it's very easy to actually live a shadow life which isn't really the life that was intended to and he's an author his books are brilliant but i think he published his first book in his 50s and i think he did probably about 40 or jobs to get to that point he was writing and stuff but it just wasn't happening he worked in advertising he worked as a trucker i think he was a cowboy he did such a wide variety of jobs but you know he thinks that everybody again if we can confront the resistance we all can lean into really what our life purpose is so he's really interesting i'll have to go look that up thank you for sharing that paul i have enjoyed our conversation so much will you tell us the name of your podcast where you can find it and sort of what it's about yeah, so the podcast is Fat Failure, you probably might have gathered, and it's called My Perfect Failure, and you know, it's on Apple, Spotify, so all the platforms. The reason I put the podcast together is because I failed, and then I thought, well, there's lots of people that actually use failure as opportunities, and actually go on to do bigger, better and fabulous things and they become far more rounded and resilient and contented with life. And, and yeah. out of not jealousy but in terms of intrigue, I wanted that in my life and then I thought to myself, well why shouldn't everybody have that in their lives? And I because I think that every one of us has the ingredients to do wonderful things. But what holds us back in certain cases can be when we hit those difficult moments when we use failure as a sign to say that we should never try again and that is a huge challenge for a lot of us and I just want to be a part of that conversation where we're able to give people examples and ideas and tools that they can take away everybody listens differently but hopefully people can take away one or Mm -hmm. two things that they can use to kind of give them a little bit more of a hopeful and accurate appreciation of a situation that might happen to them at work, personal life, in health or financial. So yeah, it's lovely having these conversations and from a selfish perspective, I get to learn. Yeah. I will include a link over to your podcast in the show notes so that people can go and find it and hear more about other people's failures and how they can relate to them themselves. So Paul, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciated having you and I enjoyed this conversation thoroughly. Thank you. I love what you're doing. I think it's fabulous. I think 40, when we get to our 40s, I think we all I love what you did actually. It's funny when you, I guess you get into the spirit of podcasting, you kind of research like, you know, even though I'm coming on your show, you, I like to research and I, I love researching you and I love what you did for your 40 of engaging with 40 different people and how it's transitioned your life and um, yeah, I almost think you should write a, you need to write a book. I don't know whether that's part of your roadmap, but I certainly think that should, Thank should, you. Be, that, that should be something that you... Funny that you say that because for almost 10 years, I was trying to write a book. Mm. A friend of mine and I, he became my writing partner and we developed a book proposal and he actually is an author of books. So he has some contacts in the publishing industry. So we would take the proposal out and pitch it to people. We would pitch it to agents and we had an agent for a year, year and a half. And we always got very good feedback on the concept right? People would say like, oh, that's such a great idea. That's so cool. And they would either say like, oh, it's not for me or try this person.
person. And interestingly, I think even just the positive feedback was something that you normally don't get from the publishing industry. But ultimately, they wouldn't take a risk on this book because I wasn't, to your point earlier, Oprah or J.K. Rowling or even a contestant on a reality show somewhere. And so they, even though the idea was great, there was no, what they call a platform, right? I didn't have a built-in audience that was ready Mm. to buy the book. So the book proposal never really went anywhere, though we revised it through the years Mm. and we'd cyclically like, you know, oh, this year we're going to work on it and we work on it and we'd send it out and get feedback and let it sit for a year and do the same thing. So two years ago, I took an online course on marketing tactics, but they were tactics that I don't really use for my clients. They were things like communities and memberships and courses and podcasts. And I knew what a podcast was. I knew what all of these things were. I just wasn't aware of how people were applying them. And so when I thought of the podcast, I thought, you know, the thing with the publishing industry is that there was always a gatekeeper and there was always somebody that was Mm -hmm. able to say no and prevent you from moving forward. And as you know, with a podcast, you don't even need to invest in a microphone and you could be a podcaster. So I thought, much like you, let me dig into this. Let me try this. And part of the roadmap is, you know, part of the dream, the big dream, if I'm talking about it out loud, um, you know, Right. Let's say it out loud. I want people to find this podcast. I want them to find this podcast to be helpful and useful and interesting and entertaining and build an audience to the point that, you know, maybe we do get to write the original book. But already I can see even by the time this episode goes live, I think your interview 55 or 56 or something, Mm -hmm. there are already other things bubbling up, other content that's possible based on what I'm learning from other people and the interviews. Mm -hmm. And like I was talking about earlier, some of the commonalities and things Mm -hmm. like that. So, you know, maybe it will be the original book. I would love that. Maybe it will be a different piece of content, whether that's a book or something else. But but yeah, the, the dream is definitely to grow it. Ah, uh, totally, absolutely. And is the book, is it around your podcast, 40 Drinks, around your turn of 40, or is this something different? So the, the original book is about my 40 Drinks project. Okay, okay. There was the 40 Drinks project that I did when I turned 40, not only the drinks, but what was going on in my life at the time. And there were definitely arcs that we were going to weave into the book. There were romantic arcs. There were friendship arcs. There were just the arcs about the drinks and some of the sort of major whammies, the sort of mind-blowing revelations from some of those drinks. There was this whole story around the 40 Drinks Project. Mm -hmm. And what was the subtitle? The 40 Drinks Project, Life, Love, Friends, and a Good Drink or something like that. Even reading your, I think it was on your website somewhere, I read the description of career and everything leading up to your 40th up and what you did. To me, it's a no-brainer. I actually see it. I 100% think you should continue with that. I get to speak to a lot of authors similar to you because of podcasting. And I guess from speaking to them, I know that you can do this. I know that you can do this. I think sometimes, like you just did, we have to speak it aloud and it just creates that intent and yeah. the universe works in a mysterious way. Honestly, I think it could be quite significant as and when you do this. Oh. Just the ingredients of what you put together, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. My friend Mark and I, who had been working on the proposal for so long, we both thought the same thing. We thought the ingredients were there. There was drama. There was transition. There was change. There was act one, act mm. two, act three. We really did put a lot of a lot of thought and, and energy into it. And one of my girlfriends told me recently we were talking about the book in the 
podcast and all of that. And I was saying that coming this direction and starting with the podcast, there were no gatekeepers. I was able to just start and, mm. and do my own thing. And she said something to the effect of, well, maybe the spirit of the idea didn't want to be a book at first. And yeah, maybe. That, that the podcast was the way to build that, that visibility, yeah. you know, yeah. find, find people who are interested in it. Yeah, I 100% think people would be interested in it. But when you initially talked, and I was thinking about a lot of the significant authors that we know today and people that have written and are known for great books and, and what have you, they get rejected and rejected and rejected and rejected like we wouldn't believe. And it's... I know. The, the world is such yeah. a misleading place because when we celebrate people, we very rarely talk about the fact that these people struggle initially. It very rarely gets mentioned on every media platform you can think of. It just positions them as this beacon and these amazing people that are so gifted at right. whatever they're doing at that time. Right. The success is the <clears throat> thing that, that yeah, is celebrated. Yeah. yeah, but these people, the struggles and the rejections and it's all there it's literally all there so in a funny sort of way the path that you and your colleague mark are navigating is kind of like the logical path to navigate if you put your book proposal in and it got accepted immediately you think am i on candid camera or something what's going on here it doesn't happen that people right. just roll the red carpet out give us a glass yeah. of champagne and stuff so it's probably <laughs> yeah. telling you that you need to knock on different doors and have different yeah conversation because I generally yeah. feel that just from reading the little what's on the website and some of the emails that we've exchanged I think wow this is like got everything oh. and you can tell that you're good at writing because the way that you craft it it just gives you that feeling that actually I want to I need to read more of this it can't end here I need to know the content yeah well I'll tell you what I'll tell you a little tiny secret and this is just for you Paul amazing, amazing. people who are listening <laughs> chapter one of the book, actually, we have a couple of chapters written, but chapter one is still hidden on my website and I'm going to share it with you. I'm going to oh, send amazing. it to you. Oh, please do, yeah. please do. Honestly, I was reading it before and yeah. like, I could sit down with a cup of tea and whatever and just like read that. So I definitely, yeah. I hope that, you know, I know you're very busy, but I hope at some point you guys do revisit it. Honestly, I think it's yeah. huge. Thank you. I think at this point, it's just going to be organic. Right now, I'm focused on the podcast and I have mm. a, you know, I have a, a big, you know, sunshiny, big, hairy, audacious goal in front of me. Yeah. And I'm just working towards that. And I yeah. hope the book becomes a part of that yeah. at some point. Exactly. And I always, I'm the same as you. I've got huge ambitions. And I think sometimes we just need a seed. We don't need to be amazing at everything. We just need to be amazing at one thing. Sometimes we can spread ourselves too thin when we try and do everything. Yep. And sometimes we just have to yep. pick the right priorities. And then once we've now for that priority then we can lean into what the next situation is we're all limited in terms of resource and capacity so yes yeah. you know the book will, will be there but i love what you're doing with the podcast and this obviously in terms of audience and people that this obviously helps that with any book in the future yeah yeah well let's hope that this podcast finds its legs and finds an audience that loves it and then the rest will fall into place well, it already has. It's growing and it's going to get bigger and it's going to get more connected. All, all good things yeah. take time. Yeah. All good things take time. Yeah, so, they so, do. Yeah, so, they do. And I'm honoured to be a guest on your show. And hopefully you can come on mine as well. We can have another lovely conversation. 
I could tell you all about my failures. Let's do that. I'll, I'll be thrilled to come on your show and talk about all oh, my, my many okay. failures. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right, Paul. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening today. This conversation with Paul got me thinking about all the many failures I've experienced in my life and how I process them. Don't get me wrong. There are certainly the ones that knock me down and take some time to shake off. Losing my last full-time job was one of those. And like I said to Paul, I still harbor some negative thinking about that, that one all these many years later, despite knowing that it was absolutely the best thing for me and a decision I probably would not have made on my own. So for someone who has shown a great tolerance for risk over the years, that was a leap I probably would not have made without being pushed. So how do I think about failures? That was something I pondered as I prepared to be a guest on Paul's podcast, which I'll let you know when that episode airs. First, as Paul said, there are opportunities in setbacks. My 16-year-old business is the perfect example of that. Had I not failed at that job and had they not shown me the door, I probably would not have worked with my career coach and started my business. If I had been allowed to just linger there a little bit longer, I probably would have started looking for a new J-O-B instead of thinking about the possibilities that lay off the beaten path. Failures for me are for sure about trial and error. They're about building skills. They're about building facility. If you're not failing, then you're probably not getting better at something. I loved Paul's story about Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx, whose dad asked her after school each day what she had failed at. I was unfamiliar with that anecdote, but I love the lesson of it. And I think the flip side of that theory is figuring out what you are good at. I mean, I will fail at math every single time you put it in front of me. If it's got more digits than I have fingers, then I'm pretty much done for. Unless, my mother has always pointed out, it's a percentage off of a retail price. I can calculate that shit, no problem. (laughs) But other than that, I have failed at math and science enough times to know that that's not where my brilliance lies. And using that kind of thinking, failures can be like bumpers that help you find your perfect path in life. There are things that you fail at where the failure will help you become better at that thing. And then there are failures that illustrate the things you should probably stay away from, like math and science for me. I think that failures can be an indication that let you know that you're not there yet. Because once you've found your way and gotten good at the thing you do, it's possible to experience smooth sailing. Ah, but did you get good at something that motivates and inspires you? Or did you get good at whatever it was that you were told you should get good at? Like my guest Tara McFarlane in episode 54, who got very good at the thing her parents told her was a good, dependable career, despite it not being a great fit for her from the start. And it led to a massive crash. Go back and listen to that episode if you want to hear more about the crushing power of the wrong path. So I guess failures can be used as a guidance system if we use them the right way. All right, next week, you're going to meet Sasha Sigmund, who had a singularly crazy month right before his 40th birthday that included losing a job and then going on an already planned 10-day silent retreat which I could not then and still cannot quite conceive of. (laughs) 
<laughs> Sasha turned 40 and had to completely reinvent himself. I hope you'll tune in next week for that one. The 40 Drinks Podcast is produced and presented by Savoir Faire Marketing Communications.